Um, hey, I'm, I'm sorry to do this. My mind has been going back and forth, and I think it's partly the decision I'm making now partly comes from um, my experience with what's going on with St. Francis and the group. We're doing the Gospels, and we just we were into our we just finished our second class on um, John's Gospel, and I've actually been blown away by it. I'm, I, I've read the Gospels before and haven't read them in a while, but I'm seeing things that I hadn't seen before, and it's typical of me when I have to teach something, I work harder at it because I have to get it to people, so I take it far more seriously. It adds something to my reading. If I read something on my own, I'll, I'll get it. But I, I think something comes to me when I have to work harder on it because I have to bring it to people. And I think that's happened here because what's what I've seen in St. John's, I mean, sorry, in John's Gospel is stunning to me, actually. But I've realized a couple of things. Um, I'm, I'm doing a work when everybody in the class has grown up hearing Scripture. And they're, they're all Catholics or have been or Christians. So they've grown up hearing these things, and these are things they, they think they already know. So I'm... I'm teaching a group um, things that in one sense I have no reason for teaching them because they already know this stuff. But what I've, what I've learned is two things. One is when you do a gospel, when you do one gospel, um, you get a completely different reading on it than you do when you're, you're getting gospels piecemeal through the year. It's like reading a work of literature. There's a hole there, and you see the hole, and it changes the way you read parts. You all should be, you all should be familiar with that experience now. I don't know about you people who sneak to the end of a work to find out what's going. I, I have no, I have no good words for you guys. Um, all of you, God, get me back to freshman kids. Um, it's been stunning to me to to see that. Because it's it's changed my readings and deepened them, and and it um, John's doing something completely different in a way, and I'm realizing it now that I've had to teach it in a way that I didn't before. Um, the other thing that I'm realizing is that we're in a in a culture today, particularly in the South, a biblical culture that knows the Bible pretty well, but in the South, there's this division between faith and reason. Pretty, pretty serious. You, you know that I've been trying to address that indirectly in our literature wherever I could. Um, because I think it's not a good thing in our minds. I just think it's one of the schisms, fractures that we inherit in our culture. Um, and it's produced a black-white mindset so that when people go to scripture they bring a black-white mindset to it. One of the amazing things that we've talked about is that Christ is fully human and fully divine. If he's fully human, that means it, it explains why Christ has questions in his ministries, and there are moments when he seems to actually change. I don't want to go into this because it's too deep. You can take you can take um, the example of of the of the episode of the Canaanite woman when he goes to him and she asks for something. He says, "Why do I give you anything? I'm here for the." children of God, the chosen people. And she says, um, even, even the dogs get crumbs from the table, and Christ, he cannot resist her. 
that that phrase, violent bared away, comes from passages like that. Christ is not going to resist love. Wherever he goes, even if he set out to do his father's will for the chosen people, and he did, at the wedding cana, when his mother says, they have no wine, he says, what do I have to do? What do I have to do with you, woman? My time's not yet. Or the Canaanite woman, when he doesn't, he's reluctant to feed her, and then feeds her. We're watching Christ expand his sense of his own mission. If he's all God, he should know it. But he's all human as well. Otherwise, what, why did he have to go through the temptations in the desert? If he were all God, there'd be no temptations. So there's a whole aspect of Christ's humanity that comes into play, I think, when we sustain a reading. But Kay, here's where I'm going. And I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to do this. When we're done with um, Shakespeare, I want to take a couple weeks break with you guys. When we pick up again, we're going to do C.S. Lewis and Chesterton. We're not going to do scriptures. We're going to do scriptures immediately afterwards. Here's my reason. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis are probably the two, two of the greatest, um, what's the word, advocates? Apologists for Christianity in the 20th century. They are two of the great, probably the two greatest apologists of the 20th century. Um, so in them, we get men who are using their intellects in defense of the faith. They're not skipping it. The modern mind tends to go to faith as if reason were not a road into it. Um, but C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton are, are probably two of the most adept men at using reasons to make sense of the world. Chesterton's book called Orthodoxy, he, he doesn't even talk about faith, or rarely. He's not evangelizing, he's not um, proselytizing. He's, he's answering all the intellectual disorders at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, but he does it with reason. And I want everybody who's going to stay with this, I'd like everybody to get stronger in reason, in their, their powers of reason, before we tackle the Gospels. Because it'll make everybody more capable of entering into the Gospels when we get there. I don't want to leave everybody in a black-white mindset because that mindset is, I think, one of the crippling qualities of our, our time. So, Kay, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to do this again. Bless your heart. We're going to take a couple weeks break, give you guys a break from me, and after we finish Winter's Tale. And then when we pick up again, we're going to do um, C.S. Lewis, Abolition of Man, and um, we may we may do a liter literary work. I may save it for later. We may um, we're going to do abolition of man and G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy. Connie, there you are. Good to see you. So, um, and I ho I hope everybody got that. The reason I want to do that is that I want everybody to see just how capable our intellectual powers are. God gave us reason. The Protestant world destroyed it. It said man's depraved, his reason's depraved. And we have these extraordinary apologists who are using their powers of reason um, to open up a way to faith that I believe will deepen our faith 
Um, but I want to take them on first just to prepare us for the Gospels, and then we'll do the Gospels. So, Kay, I'm sorry to do this. I, I, I promise I will not change my mind again. I am, I'm absolutely fixed on this. I want, I want everybody to see what an amazing thing our, our minds are. That we have this extraordinary... Because the whole world... The sciences have crippled it. They make everything determined. The Protestant mind has crippled it. They make everything depraved. Only the Catholic Church holds reason and faith together. So I'd like to I'd like to take on those two apologists. I think you'll enjoy. They're they're not going to be. They're C.S. Lewis is very simple. His arguments are straightforward. Chesterton's got a a, a deeper, more profound mind. Um, he 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 can't write five sentences without me making an argument. But you're going to learn how to think, and you're going to learn to see what an amazing thing nature is and reason because he's going to take on all the greatest thinkers at the end of the 19th century is when the sciences are making an inroad into our culture and all the all the great thinkers at the beginning of the 20th century so um, I'm gonna do that and I will not change can I promise Kate okay is everybody okay are you alluding to, are you alluding to the tendency of the Protestant denominations uh, <coughs> wrote memorization of the Bible rather than the Catholics where we're supposed to be putting something more than rote memorizations into the Bible? I don't know that I would put it that way, David. I mean, that may be one aspect of it. I, I, I think I, I'm not aware of what you're talking about, but I don't doubt it. What I'm referring to isn't quite that. It's because, and the reason I'm reluctant to put it that way is if you look at the Protestant world, it's constantly fragmenting. Churches are constantly branching off and founding new churches. That's just a fact of the Protestant world. It's continuously fragmenting. And the reason it fragments is because everybody else has a different spin on Scripture. So it's not that they're reading it rotely. It's that they interpret it differently. One person has one reading of the Bible, another person has another reading, another person has another. They form communities and they find they disagree and break off. So they keep forming other denominations. So we're watching reason go wild. What the Catholic Church is maintaining is that there is a center to our reason. There's a coherence and a beauty and a richness to it and a unity, a power to unify. Um, so it does not separate the way it gets separated out in, the, in so many Protestant worlds. And it won't, it won't get reduced to a determinism the way it does in the scientific world. Sci the sciences are based on what's determined, what can't be other than it is. We believe that man has a free will, that he's not determined. There are some things that are determined in our character. Maybe, thank God. But we have a free will. We have a mind. The world for us is an adventure. The choices that we make matter. We have a freedom. Um, it, it hurts us sometimes because we misuse it. But our trust is, if even if we misuse it and we do stupid things, we have the sacraments. We have a God who loves us. All we have to do is go back. You know, keep tripping, keep getting up, keep tripping, get up, keep tripping, get back up. You know, that's our world. It's not determined. It's not depraved. 
um, we look at the world differently. So let me stop there. I just wanted to, I'm, I, I really feel that would be the wiser thing to do instead of reversing it. Um, so we're going to do that. We'll do C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, a very, very important work for our time, and G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. And when we're done with them, we're going to do Matthew and John and Revelation. And anybody who's got the patience after that, we will return to literature and do Moby Dick and Dostoevsky and Faulkner and some other things. Um, okay. Um, You're going to do Luke? Are you going to do Luke by chance? No, we're not. Um, okay. David, it's just, it's, for me, it's just a matter of limiting. I chose, I chose Matthew because he's the first and longest. I didn't do all of them. I'm, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I, I think it's really important. I, 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 I think, I think you'll be surprised at how much we get out of Matthew and John. Um, I think you'll be surprised. Um, I may be wrong in that, but we'll so, see. So you are going to do the Matthew and John after we do C.S. Lewis uh, and J Chester? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I, I have bound myself. <laughs> you can get a lawyer and sue me if I if I break my word on this. <laughs> Melody, hi, it's good to see you. Sorry, um, I, um, let's 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 start. Any 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 prayer requests tonight? I have a prayer request. Who's that? Sorry, go ahead, Karen. Yeah. Uh, my niece, 40 years old, has got some kind of autoimmune disorder that they're really trying to figure out, and it's they keep limiting it down to we don't know what. So, what's her name? Rebecca. Rebecca. Anybody mm -hmm. else? I have one. Yeah. Um, my daughter, for my daughter Holly, please. She's um, in Africa. Wow. Doing, do it working, but doesn't seem like a very safe place. And she's going to be there for a month. And I just ask for your prayers for her safety. Yeah, for sure. Um, is this a mission? Is she their mission? What's her? Why is she in Africa? Can I ask? She's a scientist. She's a scientist. She's scientist. Um, probably collecting specimens in the wild. Wow. Um, yeah. She's a scientist. Yeah, I think the um, yeah. Is a dangerous place. Um, yeah. Hmm? She's in Togo. Holly. Anybody else? Anybody else? I have a prayer of Thanksgiving. Yeah, good. Since last we were together, we had prayed a couple of weeks ago for my son-in-law, Tom, who was struggling with COVID. And uh, last Wednesday, he had to go to the hospital with COVID pneumonia. Wow. But he responded very, very well and got to go home and it, I became so aware of how I say please, 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 but then don't say enough thank yous. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, Anne. Good for you. I think that's true of most of us, so I'm glad, I'm glad for your lead there. Um, I'm going to skip the poem tonight. Doc just reminded me, I didn't even remember that, um, and we got started late because of all the technical difficulties. I'm going to wait to do a to pick up dry salvages until next week. So let's 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 start. 
In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. We don't create ourselves. We're here as a free gift um, of mind and will and, and an inclination to fall. What a great honor um, that we are here at all means you had us somewhere in your mind. I mean, sometimes I try to imagine not being here. It's just, you know, um, we're here. There's not an ex somebody else who's not here. We're here because we're made in your image um, and we have a life. And moreover, we, um, this life is, even with all the suffering that we go through, um, we want this life desperately. We want it to go on. And the only means of it's going on is with you. So um, how good you are, what a great gift that you would have created us, that we're here and that we're doing this work together is a special gift. Um, we wouldn't do this if it weren't for you. So you are present everywhere. So for all the ways in which you um, are at work watching over us, the suffering that you allow us to endure, um, um, it all means something. Um, we can't forget that. Um, it's a grace that we could in some way enter your cross is partly a gift from you to us. Um, if we didn't have it, we would be the most selfish creatures on earth. Um, um, we have something the pagans didn't have, and I hope we can get clearer and clearer with the works we do. I hope it'll get clearer again tonight. Um, I ask a special blessing for um, Rebecca. Um, Karen, I'm sorry, she's she's got an autoimmune disease, yeah? Um, yeah. Watch over her, please. Um, surround her with your protection. Um, um, give her an ease somewhere in this trial and where there is a suffering. Um, help her to see a meaning in it. Suffering's not meaningless. Um, you allow it, and I think you especially allow it for those you love. Um, um, you, um, you, you give us more, you ask more of us. Watch over her and where there is any suffering, um, um, let it be a means of drawing her closer to you and to those around her. Ask for a special blessing on Holly in Africa. It's a dangerous place. The COVID um, numbers, I think, are way up, but there's other diseases. I mean, the, the continent is just... Um, um, What's the, the, anyway, the diseases are rampant. Um, starvation. The politics are scary. Huh? And the politics are scary. Sorry, Doug. The politics oh, are yeah. scary. Anyway, um, um, Karen, uh, or I mean, Lori has got her heart on her daughter. Um, watch over her daughter, surround her with protection, um, help her to be careful. And she knows that, or she wouldn't be there, but still. Surround her, with, surround her with your protection. Let no harm come to her, please. And let all that happens to her draw her closer to you, particularly where there are difficulties. So many people there don't have water. They don't have food. 
Um, diseases are rampant. Um, watch over her, please. Um, she's got to be brave to be there. Um, and um, we offer Thanksgiving for Tom. So there are no please, please, please behind this one. It's a genuine gratitude. Um, how good Annie is that she would do this. Um, um, continue to watch over Tom, help him in his recovery, and help Anne's heart <laughs> to grow in gratitude. It's, it's something we all hope to get better at, I hope. Um, and I ask a special grace or um, blessing on Michael and Megan. Um, they've both come down with COVID and they're newly married and I know they want to start a family. So they're carrying a lot. Um, they both are young and wonderfully stupid. They're just really good people. Um, watch over them. Um, help guide them in the paths that they have set out for themselves to get closer to you. Um, we offer all these prayers in great joy and gratitude. Um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, I'm going to skip Elliot. Um, let's go. <laughs> for, for those of you who are cheating, I don't know what to say about you guys, but um, a couple of a couple of things. One of the most important things is a is a topic I covered last week, but I want to go back to it again. Remember, last week I said that what Shakespeare did in in Winter's Tale went beyond anything he did in any other play he wrote. That's an absolute statement, any of them. It's very different from the other romances, from Pericles or Twelfth Night or um, The Tempest, Cymbeline, the, that group of plays that he writes late in his life that people call romances. I'm going to call this sacramental. You already know that. And the reason I do is because the first half of the play is as darkly tragic as any of his tragedies. It follows the um, Othello trajectory. It's exactly like Othello. A, a man becomes jealous of his wife and gets to a point of wanting to kill her. And he, he really does. He wants to get rid of her. Um, and he does everything he can to justify what he's doing. So he's like Othello in one way, but different. And we're going to come to all of that. But the point I want to make here is that he does something radically different. If you look at all of Shakespeare's other tragedies, they follow the pagan, that is the natural, pattern of tragedies. All tragedies start with something good and end with something bad. All comedies end with or begin with something bad and end with something good. They're reverse actions, yeah? And you know that according to Aristotle, every good tragedy, which means every good comedy, takes a turn. There's a peripatia, a turn and an anagnorisis, a moment of recognition where the tragic hero sees what he didn't see before and turns. And it's a painful moment because, um, as it is for any of us, um, um, picture yourself going along in life and thinking everything's okay and, and then suddenly discovering something about your family or yourself or your spouse. And it knocks you on your feet. It's like the rug gets pulled out from underneath you and you have to pick up and stagger because your world's not going to be the same anymore. That's the nature of tragedy. It, it moves us to a point of a recognition. A recognition takes place and a turn accompanies it. 
It's like a moment of conversion. And according to our faith, we know that those conversions are ongoing. So that means the road ahead of us is going to be filled with peripeties, recognitions. We see more and more deeply as we go along. Faulkner said, we carry our sins with us and put them away as we go. That's an accurate description, I think, of literature in our life. Um, I want to come back to this in a moment, but I want to touch on that. Remember, what Shakespeare does is reconcile tragedy he is, um, with comedy. He assimilates tragedy into a comic action. So even though things become dark, Leontes is going to lose his son. It appears that he's lost his wife. And yet things aren't as they appear, or not fully. And something will happen. He does not know what. He doesn't know. What he does know is that he has to listen to Paulina because Paulina makes him promise. Now remember, he's a king. He's been ordering his lords around, having his will, doing what he wants. And this woman, whom he despised you know, earlier in the play, tells him not to marry until she gives him her permission. So a king has to bend his will to a woman, a servant. And on the basis of that, amazing things are going to happen. So that tragic paradigm is assimilated in. And the point that I wanted to make last week is that comic ending has been implied all along. All along in pagan tragedy. It was implied, always. Because every tragedy ends with some evil being answered. So the way has been prepared for a new regime, a new community. That's the nature of tragedy. If we, read, if we go back over the tragedies read, you'll see it again and again and again. Oedipus, Orestes, some great injustice is answered. The cost of it is death and sorrow, um, and that's where we leave it, but it always implies um, a refounding, a recovery, a restoration, a re- something good to come out of it. But it's never shown, because for the pagan, the death was the end of it. Now this is crucial to absolutely crucial, because we're not just talking about literature right now. We're talking about life. And you know that I've been maintaining the best literature shows us really important things about our lives. The really good literature. Most literature doesn't. But the really good literature does. So, um, every tragedy implied a comedy but for the pagan world, death was it. That was it. So the most important, this is so crucial, the most important thing for a pagan was to have a stiff upper lip, to hold on, to be tough, you know, be dignified, noble. So they went to their death with some nobility. That was it. That was the end. Then Christ comes into the world and turns that pagan world on its head in one sense because he says... I am the life, the resurrection. Death is not the end of things. And he makes clear that he is life itself. He's the bread of life. Anybody who partakes of him will have life eternal. We only have to follow him. Well, that means the tragic paradigm doesn't end things. That death is not an end to things. It's the beginning of something else. And at that point, it, it becomes really clear the pagans had a noble sense of man 
Christians do also, but we also know how stupid we can be. So damnation is not a tragic thing for a Christian. It shows how stupid we can be because we've already been shown the answers. That's why Dante calls his work the Divine Comedy. When we go through hell, we feel pity the way Dante did at seeing these souls in hell, but Dante had to learn not to feel pity. That was a disordered love that put himself at odds with God and put himself on the side of sinning. Right? He had to learn gradually to let go of that pity and learn to love. I mean, the other way to put this is feeling sorry for all those sinners would have just been an enabling emotion. It would have kept them there. What good would that have done them? Is everybody following? So, um, tragedy is it no longer looks the way it does for a Christian. Shakespeare's tragedies are all Christian tragedies. They end the way the pagan world did. Macbeth is a Christian. Um, Othello's a Christian. Hamlet's a Christian. Those are all tragedies. They end with a tragic ending. And then he writes Winter's Tale. And the first half of the play follows a tragic pattern. And then something happens. So this is not just about literature. It's about a deepening of vision. A far... Just this great deepening into what I'm going to call a sacramental life. Because what happens at the end is sacramental. These extraordinary sacrifices are made, and out of it comes this joy, this um, overwhelming sense of blessedness and gratitude, joy. Okay? So it's important to keep that in mind as we read Winter's Tale. Um, one of the things that sets it off from Pericles, you know, we've talked about it. In Pericles, we've got a narrator that distances us from the action. We don't get too involved. It's interesting. I was listening to your comments before we got straightened out technically, and some of you were saying that you found the dialogue in Winter's Tale a little bit more difficult. I was actually surprised because I think it's an easier play, but it struck me that there's probably good sense in that because in Winter's Tale, we've got more dialogue going on. Something's happening. Um, that that passage we read last week, um, where where um, Leontes is going mad, and remember, I think to me it's just an overpowering passage, and he's arguing with Camilla, who's trying to defend his queen, and he goes, "Is lean is leaning cheek to cheek, nothing is meeting noses. Why then the world and all that's in it is nothing. The covering sky is nothing. Bohemia is nothing. My wife is nothing. Nor nothing have these nothings. If this be nothing, I mean, you're watching a man." become so intense he can't hold himself. He's reduced the world to nothing. And I don't think this is just an accident on Shakespeare's part. He's showing that the mind by itself is capable of destroying itself. A suicide can say, I have no reason for living, and give himself a reason for taking his life. Reason by itself can be destructive. I hope you know, I mean, I, I hope I was clear earlier, one of the reasons I want to do Chesterton and G.K., I mean, and Lewis, is because they show the very best of reason. They're showing what a good mind can do. 
Shakespeare's showing us something that's on the verge of modernity. It's what the modern mind does with itself when it loses its roots in faith. So, um, we weren't just looking at a, a quality of literature. We were looking at a way in which literature relates us to life. Um, we talked about um, Leonti's madness, the way it can divide, the way it divides him from his wife, from his son, from Camilla, from his friend. So when the play starts, the play begins with two men who have been friends since childhood and um, a deep love between a husband and a wife. And almost immediately, those things that we th would think we could take for granted, the friendship with a dear friend or the love we hold for a spouse, suddenly gets torn apart. Um, and I, I'd suggested that one of the reasons I think this play is superior to Othello is that in Othello, um, Othello, the, the harm that he does Desdemona, his wife, is caused by something outside of himself. Iago works him into a frenzy. So the cause of it is really outside. It, 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 it works on a weakness in Othello, but the cause is outside of himself, outside of Othello, Siago. This is superior because we see that the cause of sin is from within us. Christ said that. We can keep blaming the world for what the world doesn't give us or what we wish we had and don't get, or, but eventually we have to come to terms with ourselves, who we are inside. Remember when he says, um, um, he looks at um, his wife and Polixene off in the corner. Sweet, he's looking at his son. Sweet villain, most dearest, my call-up, can thy die, that damn, thy, thy mother, may it be. He can't believe what he's seeing right now. Affection, thy intention stabs the center. Thou dost make possible things not so held. Communicate us with dreams. How can this be with what's unreal, thou coactive art? You're beginning to align yourself with something that's not real, and yet he can't stop himself. It's completely from within himself. That, to me, is an advance in our human understanding. Um, it confirms everything that Christ says. It's what comes out of us um, that can hurt us, not what goes into us. We have to take care of what comes into us. I mean, you know that. Um, so the power of sin to divide, to destroy, and the capacity of the mind to undo, undo itself. Um, I, this is getting ahead of us, but um, just to, uh, to make this a little bit clear, turn to Act 4, Scene 4, just for a moment. Just for a moment. Go to Act 4, Scene 4, about line 75 or so. We're in Bohemia. It's where Antig Antigonus will take Perda to the babe and leave her to her fate. You know that, um, or you, or I'm not sure. You, you'll if you haven't read yet, you'll find out that after Antigonus um, leaves her, he's eaten by a bear, and and she's picked up by a shepherd and his son, the clown, and raised. So she's not raised in a court. She's raised in humble setting. It makes for a very different young woman. She's not given to the pride or spite or vanity that women raised in court might be. Um, 
There's a sheep fest going on, a spring fest, and Perdita is giving flowers. Polixenes um, has dressed up to disguise himself because he heard his son has fallen in love with this young shepherdess, <clears throat> and he wants to see who she is. Perdita is the is the hostess of the feast, the, the celebration. She's giving flowers to everybody. I don't want to go into this now. We'll go into it later, but I want to throw this out. She offers these flowers to Polixenes, and about line 80, she says, Wherefore, uh, Polixenes says, Wherefore, gentle maiden, um, did, do you neglect them? Because there's some flowers she will not give. Then she says, There's an art which in their piedness shares with great creating nature. Yet nature's made. Now, he will argue and say that art can add something to nature. An artist can do that with what he does with his art. He's making a sound argument. Um, she says, so it is. Then make your garden rich in gillivores. Grow those flowers and do not call them bastards. Perdita, I'll not put the dibble in earth to set one slip of them. She refuses and she gives her reason. I don't want to go into this. The line that I want to take everybody to is that line of hers where she says, For I have heard it said, There is an art which in their piedness shares with great creating nature. The way that Shakespeare's presented this is that's a virtue that's peculiar to women because they can give birth. Great creating nature. Men cannot. I mean, they can give birth to things in their mind. Now, I hope everybody sees this. One of the questions that Shakespeare is raising here is the, the potentially destructive character of the masculine intellect. If the masculine intellect isn't rooted, and by the way, I'm going to include women in this because women have stepped into the political world right now and have given themselves more to that. The, the intellect by itself can become destructive. We, we see that happen when, when Leontes goes, is this nothing, 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 nothing? He just destroys the world. His mind can take it away. On the other hand, there is this virtue of in women because they can bring forth. We're going to see that in the beginning with Hermione and her son because there's a touching exchange between the two of them. We're going to get there immediately. But here it's associated with Perdita who's very close to nature. She takes care of it. She gardens. She brings things to life. What she's doing with her flowers is what a woman does with a child. Nurturing, bringing to life. But what's crucial here is that if there is an art, the question is, is that art in accord with nature? Now, is that clear? Because lots of poets can write stories that are out of tune with nature. Shakespeare would have been really critical of that. He would say that every one of his stories is in accord with nature. It works with nature to bring the best out of nature. So um, women can give birth and be out of tune with their nature. I mean, we hear examples of women killing their kids or destroying them today a lot. So, And I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking just about abortion. I'm thinking about what some women do with their children after they're born. Um, so this relationship between art and nature is going to be crucial to this whole play. It's going to end, I'm not going to give this away, even though some of you have skipped ahead, 
it's going to end on a scene in which art and nature are going to be brought together in an amazing way. Now let me try to tie this up with my first point. For the pagans, death was the end of things. So tragedy would have ended with a death. Right? So the pagan was only imitating nature. Yes, all things die. Does everybody follow me? The Christian believes in a resurrection. So if a Christian is going to imitate nature, there ought to be some place for the resurrection of something transcending life. So Christianity will change this relationship between art and nature. And Shakespeare's dealing with that theme explicitly here. The play will end on that note. Is that clear? Tragedy was the high mark of a pagan world. The question was, could you die with dignity or not? But death marked the end of it. For a Christian, that's not so, because a Christian believes in the resurrection. The question is, if a Christian is writing art, is he writing an art in tune with nature? And if that nature involves a resurrection, does he bring that spirit into his art? Now let me stop. Is that clear? I, I, um, Michael, you look like you're troubling on that. Are you? Is everybody okay? Do anybody have questions on what I'm saying here? This is an important theme. It's 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 it goes right to the heart of what's going on in Winterstam. No questions. No. Melody, oh, you. Sorry, not not troubling. Sorry. Okay. We okay? I will admit that I could not repeat that back to you, so uh, it it went over the top of my head. So if you can delve into it a little bit more, okay, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I think most of you are safer and trying not to repeat anything I say. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Let's see. If you were gonna if you were an artist and you took seriously took the ser arts and imitation of nature that we imitate what's going on in front of us, children do, adults do, you know, we learn by imitation, we do that without even thinking of it. If you look at art as a form of imitation and you're in a pre Christian world, you you believe that life ends with death. So death would mark the end of it. That's it. There would be a sober, stoic kind of spirit, right, that you'd bring. Aristophanes was a pagan. He wrote comedies. They're wonderful comedies. So we know we can, you know, the pagan could laugh. Um, but all of them shared that belief that life ended with death. Yeah. So the highest form was thought to be tragedy because it showed the dignity of man in facing his last end because after that nothing exists you're you know you're in a dark world you're in the underworld for a christian that's not true you don't go to an underworld unless you're damned you go to god i mean you're going to be in bliss that was the whole point of dante's divine comedy you know going through the heavens and returning step by step to that bliss that extraordinary bliss um so when a Christian looks at life, he doesn't see death as the end of things. He sees a resurrection. 
That affects the way he looks at nature. So if he's going to write a work of art, the resurrection should somehow play into that work. It wouldn't be hopeless, it wouldn't be despairing, even if he dealt with, like Faulkner or Dostoevsky, if it dealt with death, there would still be a greater meaning in that death than there would have been for a pagan. Because as Christians, they would look at the world differently. They'd look at death differently. They'd look at life differently. Does that help? Yes. So when you're talking about artists in this respect, it's authors. Because I was thinking in terms of, you know, painters as well, or any type of art. Do you think any type of art, a Christian art, like a, a painting, would reflect the resurrection as well? Absolutely. Music. I mean, listen, listen to... Uh, Listen to Bach. You know, go through some of Bach um, sonatas, or you know, um, I can't remember the names of the pieces, but um, listen to Bach. Set it against some contemporary music. Um, listen to some rap, or I mean, rap, and set it next to Bach. You know, if 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 the focus in a rap, a piece of rap, is violence and shooting and killing, and you know, I mean, it's hard to find a resurrection in that music. And lots of people will say, they'll claim, they'll argue, that's more realistic because they think anybody facing death is more real than some Christian who's living in a la-la land. Okay. Okay, okay now, to, okay. Okay, now, okay, now you're on the spot. Now, repeat it back to me. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Don't, okay. <laughs> don't I was prepared. <laughs> no. But Bob, but Bob, now that you've talked it out with Melody, that something has uh, spurred in my mind that I've, in view of what you're talking about, how, do, how does that uh, treat, um, you know, we talk about art as portraying, uh, in one sense, we talk about art as portraying beauty, but I know that we have many examples of art, especially in the modern world, that where the artist portrays ugliness, right, right, and uh, how it is, and yet you know when we the the examples that we have that you mentioned, you know, pagan, like the pagan playwrights in the Greek world, they weren't portraying ugliness, even though they didn't have a vision of the resurrection, right, right. Uh, but there's certain there's a stark difference between. An artist that portrays beauty from one that portrays ugliness. Yeah, listen, I'm going to try to steer clear of this. I'm, I'm going to just comment on this briefly because, um, and next time I'm not going to I'm not going to ask Melody. I'm going to keep her quiet. <laughs> um, the, what the two of you are touching on, and I mean, is so profound. You could, you know, we could take hours going over this, and I I just want to be careful here. Let me try to respond to this briefly, and, and um, I just would ask all of you to just, or the two of you to, I, I, don't want to, I don't want you not to ask questions. I just don't want that. But if you could just be careful here with our time. I'm, I'm glad to do this, but I, I know that this is a deep subject. Let me, let me try to give some clarity on this. Let's say you look at a painting by Pollock. Isn't that his name? Yeah. You know, if, um, we watched a movie called The Accountant. It's a movie that I really like in which one of his paintings, it just looks like chaos. Um, but remember, that painting, wait, if he held himself, if, if as a modern, he believed that there, 
that only chaos existed. There was no meaning to the world because lots of modernists believe that. They're not going to show a resurrection in their art. I hope that's clear. So if it's ugly, I mean, the most obvious answer, Mike, to your question is, it's because the world is ugly to them. They don't see anything good. We've read Boethius. There's an awful lot of order. I, I just find that an incoherent argument. There's too much order in the world. If the world were chaotic, as, as some Nobel scientists say, profess, they do, if the world were chaos, how could we bring any order to it? Where do we get it from? Where, where were our frames of reference? If you look at Pollock's painting, that, I'm thinking of that one in particular that's in my mind, it's in a frame. The, the very fact that it's in a frame gives it a beauty. It gives it a wholeness and a meaning in itself. You may question the beauty of it, but there's, there's something... He's struggling to capture a beauty, I don't know what to call it, a, um, a submicular or, or a subatomic world. You know, I, I'm, you know, it's hard to name it. But there is some beauty to it. He's, he's trying to get to something that's not a conventional painting. And let me set this off, I mean, to try to make it clear. Um, I don't like a lot of representational art. I particularly don't like it in the church. I wish the church would keep up with the spirit. It's hard for the church to do this because the church can go nuts if it does. But a lot of a lot of art is is literally representational. Now tell me this: what's the difference between representational art and a photograph? There isn't. They're the same. A, a, an artist who's painting or a musician, or let's let's stay with art, a painter. He's not trying to paint the world exactly as it is because a photograph can do a better job at that than he, he can, a camera. That's why the Romantics or the, you know, so many of the schools in the 19th and 20th century did what they did. They were showing that there's something in the artist that gets projected out onto a world. But all of them were still trying to capture some beauty, whether it was light or shade or, you know, whatever the technique or the school. So, no art is strictly representational. It tries to represent the world, but reveal in it something the world that isn't obvious to most of us when we look at the world. So Shakespeare's art, it's absolutely representational. I mean, it's showing us people in their senses, but it's also by the, by, by, um, the, the dream that Antinicus has when he Antigone, and. Antigonus, when he comes to the Bohemian, remember, and drops the, he describes the dream. Or in the first part of the play, when we get an oracle, Shakespeare's bringing in the gods, but he's doing it in a very subtle way. If we're reading attentively, we know the gods are involved in this play. Whatever's going to happen, the divine order's in it. Does he show us the gods the way Homer does? Absolutely not. He won't do that. He's, he's sticking us in a representational world, but he's managing it in a way to let us know the gods are there. They're at work. Something's happening. But never at the expense of being representational, being true to what's in front of him. So one of the problems of artists' faith is how do, face is how do, they, how do they render the world in music, in painting, in sculpture, without just being literal or without... Um, going mad and losing all sense of a reference to reality at all. Because you can go to either extreme. You can either go nuts and lose any connection with the world, or you can become too literal. Are you following? 
I, one of my friends, I mean, when I, when I converted the church and I taught in California, the dearest friend that I had there was the, I, you know, I wish, I wish I got, maybe next week I'll pull up some pictures. He was a painter. Almost every one of his scenes is biblical and there's nothing about them literal. I'll bring some and show you. I, I just think they're extraordinary. You know where you are. In fact, we've got a painting in our house. It's Moses with the snake, the, the, the uh, staff. But it's not, it's not a literal thing. It's, it's deeper than that. It's, it's showing some communion between the artist and that thing. That something is taking place there that's peculiar to that artist. So he's faithful to reality as it is, but he's bringing a spirit to it that's his own. Exactly. Who writes plays like Shakespeare? He's bringing something so unique to him. It's what makes him so powerful. He holds himself accountable to the world, but he always does it in a way that reveals something else going on in the world. He's remarkable in that way. I don't know if that helps. So, I mean, the obvious answer, Mike, is that there's lots of ugliness in art, and it's celebrated because there are lots of people who think that's all there is in the world. The world's ugly. They don't see a resurrection. And if they don't, they're not going to show it. And yet, you, I, I mean, I look at somebody like Pollock and his artwork, and, I, and I, he, he is, he's modern in that sense. And yet I look at some of his work, and I, I'm left puzzled. There's a strange beauty to it. Um, you know, and one of the best spins that I can put on it is he, I think, he believes the world is chaotic, it's chaos, and yet he's an artist, and he's trying to find some beauty in it, to bring it by what he creates. I don't know if that, does that help, Mike? Melody, you, are you okay with that? Yeah? Okay. Okay, let's, um, if you go to my notes at the bottom, you'll, you'll I, I, I put in my, at the bottom of my notes, I'm, I'm representing again the, the pattern of drama from an opening conflict, a complication, a crisis, a denouement, a resolution. We've gone over this before. If you look at my notes, you'll see them, right? Every play begins with some opening conflict. It's obvious here. It was there in Pericles, right? With um, Antigonus' daughter. There's a complication. Something happens. Okay, what's here? Let's stop. What's the complication to Winterstale? The opening conflict is between Leontes and his wife and Polixenes, the way that he looks at it. What's the complication? Let's get clear on this. This is good. What's the complication? I don't think this is a hard question. To me, the complication is she's innocent, that he has this all in his mind. That's the conflict, or the, the conflict is that he has a cheating wife, but the complication is she's not cheating. It's all in his imagination. Let me, let me say that that's a part of the, the opening conflict, okay? Let's make that a part of it. What happens after that that complicates things? I'm going to have to start giving you guys quizzes. Well, the, the Polixenes departs, and, and, and Camilla changes sides. Camilla goes to Polixenes to try to help him, and they leave. And all what, what that does is only reinforce in Leontes' mind that he's a part of this plot, this scheme. 
don't you see how that complicates things? I mean, he, he's lost his best servant. Um, it's, it means it's a setup for something else that's going to happen. We don't know what. But a complication is added there that's pretty serious. Okay. Then there's a crisis. The crisis will be when uh, he gets the news from the oracle and he loses his wife and son. The denouement will be the settling of all of that towards the end of the play and the resolution will be the final scene. But here's my question. Here, listen, to, I, want, I want some serious attention here. This pattern is fixed. If you had a, a drama by a playwright who believed that the world was chaotic, he'd have no reason to follow it. He could present a term, he could present a play that was nothing but chaos. Now, I, I'm assuming the answer to this is obvious. If, if he believed that the world was nothing but chaos and presented a play that was chaotic, who would read it? What would there be there to read? Is that clear? If the world were chaotic, he'd have no frame of reference for bringing order to it. Every play assumes an order in the world. If it were all chaos and presented a play, it would be chaotic. We'd, we'd, who, who would want to read Garble? None of us would. We wouldn't spend the time. The reason this is such a sound pattern, and you find it, you'll find it in Jane Austen, you'll find it in Dickens, you'll find it in Faulkner, you'll find it in Dostoevsky, right? You'll find it everywhere. Is because it's imitating a principle in nature. And we've had it from the beginning, and Boethius spelled it out, that even though human beings trip and fall, even though we do stupid things, and they can have harmful consequences, we are not innocent, none of us. There is an order to the world. Nature will reassert itself. Man will recover. So the tragic paradigm always shows the tragic hero recovering an equilibrium, a balance. And it's in that sense that he becomes once again one with nature. Okay, let me put this differently. If you take this pattern, opening conflict, complication, crisis, denouement, resolution, it's on my notes if you've got them, you could apply it to every one of Shakespeare's plays. Now here's my question. I mean, think about this seriously. Every play would fit this pattern. Not a one would deviate from it. Every one of them, would, every comedy would follow the same pattern. It would just be a, it would be a comic play, a, a comic trajectory. Every play has a different thesis, a different theme. Different characters, different setting. Everyone has a different plot. How could they have different plots and still follow this pattern unless this pattern were a reflection of something in nature? That nature is rational. That we're always struggling. We do stupid things. We lose our balance. We recover it. We sin. We get back on our feet. Okay? You could take everyone. How could they all be so different in character, in setting, in action, in theme, and yet follow this pattern? The answer is obvious. Because it's showing Shakespeare's recognition that there is a nature to things. Remember Boethius's principle, bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness is diffusive of itself. God is always at work. 
He is most present in the nature He made. Nature is rational. It's intelligible. It reflects an order of its creator. So any art that's close to nature will show whatever the theme is. It can be Faulkner, it could be Dostoevsky. It will follow this pattern because this pattern is an exact let me put it differently. Let me, if I can, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm trying to keep as real as I can here because it, you know, most, most people will put this off in abstractions. Um, I'm going to take myself. I can remember 10 years ago when I was just put on my back by something we had discovered in our family. I mean, we had to deal with a serious problem. And I can say, looking at my life, <laughs> every year has had difficulties. I mean, our kids, the struggles, job. I mean, I don't think we have to look far to find struggles in our lives. So at every moment in our life, wouldn't it be fair to say, going back to the same pattern, every moment reflects what I'm talking about. Every moment is in medias race. Remember the epic term, in medias race, in the midst of things. Every epic begins in medias race. Is there a Jane Austen novel that doesn't begin in medias race? Is there a modern novel that doesn't begin in medias race? We're always in the midst of things. But what follows from that in the midst of things is a crisis, problems, and overcoming them. There may be tragic losses, there may be deaths, you know, but there's this pattern. It's in our nature. It's in the nature of nature itself. So it's not as if, you know, we had our first in medias race 10 years ago and it's over now. The drama's completed. <laughs> God, what an awful life. Life is going to be full of adventures. Things are going to happen with our kids. Things are going to happen with our grandchildren. I can't wait. God. <laughs> Give me a ticket to, I keep telling my kids I'm going to Alaska. They're on their own. Anyway, you're all following, right? Life is always in medias race. We're always picking up. We're always working to... It's exactly what Pericles did. I mean, take another example. Scene after scene after scene, regime after regime, he's encountering something. Gets thrown off his feet, something happens, you know, and it's, it all moves towards that extraordinary moment at the end where he hears the music of the spheres. So, okay, enough. Is, is everybody following? So these tragic comic patterns are not just arbitrary things of art. They're important because they reveal something to us about our nature and nature itself. There are two regimes. I don't want to go. I'm, I'm, we've taken too long. I'm ta I want to get. I want to get us into the play. You know that there are two regimes. Cecilia, which is the more sophisticated type of Renaissance regime, it would have been the time, the kind, the kind of regime that would have existed at Shakespeare's time during the Renaissance. He would have known Florence, Venice, Milan. All of those were great, developed, sophisticated, deeply sophisticated in art. They were the most artistic cities in the world. The Renaissance came out of Italy, not England. England came 200 years later. The paradigms for all work were in Rome, in Italy, because that's where the, the greatest conflicts took place between church and state. Bohemia's a pastoral world. It's an Arcadian world. People are closer to nature. There's, there's going to be a sheep fest, a sheep festival. You know, we're in very two very different regimes. And interestingly, at the center of both of those regimes are kings, men, 
around whom all these problems come up. Leontes with his wife, it'll be Polixenes with his son. Because the quarrels between fathers and sons are sort of given in life. Fathers and children, mothers and children. No? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just speaking too much for myself. Maybe you guys don't know those things. We can confirm it. Okay. Glad one of you can out there. God. Yeah. We got stories. <laughs> I know. I, you know, if, if, if I had another lifetime or a double life, I'd get back online and I'd, I'd do a creating and writing course with all of you guys. Um, <laughs> Oh, I would. I mean, I, there's not a question in my mind. I mean, you know me and my love of literature. There's not a question in my mind that every one of you carries almost every work we've read inside yourselves. So you had your own stories, you're, you know, and they're still going on, unless you're asleep. Um, okay, let's go. Let's go to the book. Let's go to where we left off. Let's go to the beginning of Act 2. And I want to I want to try to get through this. I hope all of you guys will read my notes. I asked questions. We got started late tonight because of these technical problems. Next week when we start, I'm going to ask those questions. But I would ask you to look at the notes that I gave you, and look at the questions that I asked on page three and four because they're they go to our life today, and they're they're I think they're tough-minded questions. Not now, but but after class, okay? Act two. You know that. Camilo has, and Polixenes have agreed to flee because they know that Leontes is a king, he's a noble man, he's very noble, um, but they know he's lost it. And the wisest thing they think to do is to leave. So they leave. And you know, I mean, here it is again, that complicates things because from Leontes' perspective, all it does is confirm in his mind what he believes. Polixenes is false, Camilo's false, Everything he sees is going to convince him. It's going to be evidence supporting his way of looking at the world. That's the sign of a madman. It's a shrunken... He's absolutely rational. Completely rational. But his world has narrowed down almost to nothing. Act 2, scene 1, it begins with Hermione and her son and the ladies. Hermione says, take the boy to you. He so troubles me. It's his past enduring. You can hear her partly half-truth and, I mean, being truthful and facetious at the same time. She's get, probably saying, get this nuisance away from me. But I think conveying some love for her son because she clearly loves him. Um, the lady comes and says, shall I, shall I be your play fellow for a while? And Now, look at this young boy. No, I'll none of you. Why, my sweet lord? You'll kiss me hard and speak to me as if I were a baby still. I love you better. Second lady, and why so, my lord? Not for because your brows are blacker, yet black brows, they say, become some women best, so that they be not too much hair there, but in a semicircle or a half moon made with... He's observant enough to see that the sexual um, allure that women can give themselves by what they do, you know, with their makeup or... The lady, who taught you this? I learned it out of women's faces. Pray now, what color are your eyebrows? He's full of courage, he's full of spunk, he's going to, he's not going to be put off. He just seems like a really good young kid who, um, who's being playful, but who has a wisdom. Um, 
Um, the second lady, she is spread of late into a goodly boat, good time. Encounter her, it's an indication that she's pregnant. Hermione, what wisdom stirs amongst you? Come, sir, now. I am for you again, so she's going to come back. Pray you sit by us and tell us a tale. Merry or sad shall it be? As merry as you will, a sad tale's best for the winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. You can hear him going, once upon a time. I mean, you can hear the boy having sort of fun. The title of the book is A Winter's Tale. And I think it, I, it's never referred to directly except here. It's A Winter's Tale. I think this is the prelude to it. The Winter's Tale, I think, I mean, I would be grateful for anybody else's thoughts on this, but I think The Winter's Tale refers to that period after Leontes loses his son and wife and Paulina asks him to be obedient to her. She says, you have done these. She, she rakes him over coals. Just mercilessly, she reminds me of uh, Beatrice with Dante. She is merciless, just rakes him. Over. He's, he's led, his actions have led to the death of his wife and son. Paulina's not going to watch over this um, or just skip it over. She rakes him. I think a winner's tale begins then because she makes clear that everything he does after that point will be a penance. So we've entered Dante's Purgatorio. This is a for this middle part of the play is purgatorial comedy. It's about a suffering that has to be endured. Or the or the blessedness won't come out of it. Is everybody clear? It's a winter's tale. It's a purgatorial period. It's a time of doing penance for wrongs. Okay? Um, Leontes comes in about line 40 or so. Um, there may be in a cup a spider steeped, and one may drink to part and yet partake no venom, for his knowledge is not infected. But if one present the abhorred ingredient to his eye, make known how he hath drunk, he cracks his gorge, his, that is, he's, he's seen it. He, he's got evidence that his wife has been unfaithful, so... If he'd drunk and not seen it, it wouldn't matter, but he's seen it. And he's convinced that he's taken poison. Um, all's true, what a wonderful line, all's true that is mistrusted. Somebody paraphrase that, because it goes along with those lines where he says, nothing is nothing is nothing. Here he's saying, all's true that is mistrusted. Somebody paraphrase that. What's he saying? Anne, can well, you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Michael. No. Well, I, it seems this whole paragraph is a testament to uh, how cocksure Leontes is in his own perception. He doesn't. He doesn't second guess himself at all. Mm -hmm. uh, at the be, at the beginning, he's he says, uh, uh, "How blessed I am in my just censure and my true opinion." And but uh, I lost my place here. You were asking about... The only thing, let me do it. The only thing that's true is what he mistrusts. He takes that as reality. And yes. anything that doesn't conform to that, in his mind, will be false. Yes, so he's, he's, he's repeating in different words what he said at the top yeah. of the... Yeah. Yeah. Is everybody clear? 
I mean, stop and think about this for a moment. I, when, when I, it's hard for me. I hope everybody's seen this. I can't read these plays without seeing Shakespeare aware of Henry VIII, Elizabeth, all the intrigues at court. How could any king have lived at that time and not have lived in an atmosphere of absolute mistrust? Everything they would see would be mistrusted. If anybody differed from that, they would have been a fool. So we're in a world that has been annihilated, reduced to nothing, and the opposite side of that same face is you can't trust anything. Anything outside of that's not true. It's the ultimate self-reference. So now instead of taking his guide from what's observed nature, it's, it's interior. Yeah. I must trust it, therefore it's true. Yeah, and he's projected it on the whole world. I mean, that's the way the world is. By the way, to, to just reinforce it, we're back in Cornwall's, we're back, I hope everybody sees this. Justice for Leontes is what he makes it. He's got the power. Was, is one of the, I mean, go, I want you to look serious at my questions because the question that I'm raising in the, in the notes that I gave you is, we don't live in a monarchy, we live in a democracy. We think we're freed from those abuses of power. I don't believe we are. And I think there are serious allusions to living in a democracy, and we're living them. So take a serious look at my questions, okay? He's doing what Cornwall did, what Goneril did. He's got the power to make the world conform to what he wants. St. Thomas, truth is the conformity of the mind with things. We have to learn to conform our mind to things. Madness is making things conform to our mind, having things the way we want them. And if we have power, <laughs> we're going to reinforce that. Um, Hermione is perplexed. He accuses her of treason. Um, he says, Leonti says around Lent 75, but let it be known, um, ere you can say she's honest, because he knows everybody's going to protect her. Be it known from him that most cause to grieve it should be. She's an adulteress. Imagine the shock that a wife would feel at a moment like this, where to her mind everything's been okay, and suddenly her husband says she's unfaithful. Hermione, should a villain say so, the most respellish villain in the world, he were as much more villain. You, my lord, but do mistake. You have mistook, my lady, Polixenes for Leontes. O thou thing, um, he makes her a thing. Um, I have said with whom more she's a traitor, and Camilo is a fettery with her. I hope you see, given where he started, he can only project out on everybody else. So once again, it's showing how what's going on inwardly within us, we can project on the world and make something so when it's not that way at all. That's not the world's fault. That's our fault. Shakespeare's showing. I mean, that's what makes him so extraordinary. He, he's showing us what Christ makes clear in everything Christ says. He continues to accuse her um, and then says, he says about line 100, No, if I mistake in those foundations which I build upon, the center is not big enough to bear a schoolboy's top. Away with her to prison. He, should, he who shall speak for her is after is a far-off guilty, but that he speaks. If he says anything at all, he's going to make himself complicit with her. Unless you agree with him, you're a traitor. So the whole world now has come under the power of this king. 
God, it's just... Well, you know, think about the kings and queens in Shakespeare's time. Think about in our own time what lawmakers... Seriously, what lawmakers do with laws today that have the force of a king because everybody has to follow them when those laws are not in tune with our nature. You don't have to live in a monarchy for these abuses to take place. Shakespeare's showing that, that when you combine power with a law, it can do tremendous harm. It can be destructive if it's not in accord with nature, with the way things are. Hermione responds, there's some ill planet reigns, I must be patient till the heaven look with an aspect more favorable. Good my lords, I'm not prone to weeping, as our sex commonly are. The want of which vain do, perchance shall dry your pities. Her ladies are teared up. But I have that honorable grief lodged here, in which burns worse than tears drown. Beseech you all, my lords, with thoughts so qualified as your charity shall best instruct you. Measure me, and so the king's will be performed. She's saying, he's a king. Um, she's being obedient. It's as if she's being virtuous. And Leontes is so upset with his virtue, he says, shall I be heard? <laughs> On top of her. And then she replies, who is it that goes with me? Beseech your highness. My women may be with me, for you see my plate requires it. She's pregnant. Do not weep, good fools. There is no cause. When you shall know your mistress has deserved prison, then abound in tears as I come out. This action I now go on is for my better grace. Adieu, my lord. I never wish to see you sorry. Now I trust I shall. My women, come. You have leave. Characterize. Hermione in these in this scene. Can you guys? Here, let me get the women out of this for a second. Uh, can the men. Bob, characterize Hermione here, can you? <laughs> I think I'm I'm gonna pass on that one. <laughs> David, I, I don't see a picture of you. Um, can you can you show yourself? But David, do you ever? How would you characterize Hermione here? Are you there? Anybody? Sorry, do you have? Can you hear me, David? Or do you do you have a yes? I hear you. Yes, you, I hear you. Do you have a response? How would you characterize Hermione? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, sure. Chuck. Sorry, Doug. She's self. She's self-possessed. She's dignified. Beyond that, she's a. She is a. How should I put it? She refuses to be buffeted by bad forces. So she's the epitome of the idea that when you can't control what happens to you, you can at least control your reaction to it. Can you can you describe her reactions? I mean, you, you're. Can you name them? Can you put a quality to them? You're, I mean, your description I think is a good one. Can you? Um, when she says, "When you know your mistress has deserved prison," she says, "Do not weep, good fools." Um, um, 
But you, my Lord, I never wish to see you sorry. Now I trust I shall. My women come. You have leave. Yeah, she's maintaining steadfastly her innocence and her honor. She's not giving giving one inch. And she's, and she's exemplifying duty. I mean, he's still her sovereign. So she is going to do her duty. Bit of a stretch, but the kind of way Socrates did his duty when he said, okay, well, above all, you have to obey the law. I'll drink this hemlock. Yeah. Mike, you have, have anything to add to that? Um, the only thing I can add to what Chuck said is uh, no bitterness. You know, she's, she's going away, banished to prison, and uh, she is sorry that uh, she knows that this will eventually bring sadness to her husband. Yep, yep, yep. In that respect, she reminds me of Helena. I don't I, I don't know how well you remember the play, but remember when she learned that Bertram fled to Italy? She she held herself responsible for that. Bertram's a, I don't know what to call him, a, you know, you, you've heard me, a scoundrel. A, I mean, he, he, he broke his oath and fled, and she held herself responsible. It was an amazing scene. Um, it's interesting to me to to see the comparison between the two, because to me they're... They, to me, they couldn't be closer to Christ. Um, Socrates, I mean, I'm glad that Chuck brought that up because he would, Socrates, a pagan, you can look at Thomas Beckett or, you know, we, we're going to do that if we stay together. Um, but there are these martyrs who suffer, Paul suffered greatly, and you know that if you read Paul's letters closely that he took all of his sufferings in joy they were for Christ. He, he never he never backed down. He just kept going because he, he realized how the wrong he'd committed. He wanted to make up for him in, in following Christ and um, it's just extraordinary to me. I, I, it's, I, in all my reading of literature it's hard for me to find a parallel to this moment. Adieu my Lord, I never wish to see you sorry. She cares more about his sorrow than she does of being mistreated. She does not give in to being a victim. That she's being, she deserves better. There's no hint of that kind of pride in a woman here, or her as a woman. She's not going to do that. Um, she speaks truthfully. Um, there's no scorn. There's no pride. There's no spite. There's no sense that she's been wrong, except I mean, except to say it. But she does it with this sense of a sorrow that she's afraid her husband's going to feel for what he's done. It's an amazing expression of the good of another person when what that person is doing is not good. It reminds me of Mary when Mary says to Christ, you know, when he was 12 and coming out of the, the temple. And she said, why are you doing this to us? Um, she didn't blow up at him. Um... It's an amazing scene. Um, um, you know what happens then. He sends um, Antigonus with the... Um, well, he's, um, he's going to take all the lords on. All of the lords here are going to defend um, um, the queen. Um, and he's going to say they're all wrong. Um, Um, he scorns them um, because they don't see um, the right that he sees. 
Act 2, Scene 2, Paulina goes to the jail to see the babe, and she learns from Amelia, who comes out, if you go to 2-2, about line 25 or so, Paulina comes to the jailer, to the jailer. he's not going to let her pass. Amelia comes out, as well as one is so great, so forlorn may hold together, on her frights and griefs, <coughs> which never tender lady hath borne greater. And clearly she's a, a patient, a, a woman of extraordinary patience and endurance. She's in jail, she's in the tower. She's just delivered a child, and clearly she does it with this extraordinary patience, which never tender lady hath be, um, borne greater. She is something before her time delivered. Uh, Paulina, a boy, Amelia, a daughter, and a goodly babe. Lusty and like to live, the queen receives much comfort and says, My poor prisoner, I am innocent as you. There's that word prisoner again, because remember it opened when um, Hermione said to Polixenes, Are you going to stay as my prisoner or as my guest? You have a choice. She was being playful. But now we hear this word again, go down a few lines to the end of the, that scene. Um, <clears throat> the jailer will not let her pass. She manages to persuade him to give the babe up and she'll take it to Leontes in the next scene. But here she says, you need not fear, sir. This child was prisoner to the womb and is by law and process of great nature, thence freed and enfranchised, not a party to the anger of the king nor guilty if any be the trespass of the queen. What does she mean? What do those words mean? You need not fear, sir, this child was prisoner to the womb and is by law and process of great nature thence freed and enfranchised, not a party to what's taken place. What do her words mean? What is she saying about the baby? By the way, um, I'm trusting that everybody's She's in circumstances similar to Marina's. I can't remember how you who put it that way, but some one of you said last week, um, Marina had no choice. You know, um, she had to flee. She was captured. She was put in a whorehouse, a brothel. She had no choice. Neither does Perdita. So we're looking at two girls born into the world with no choice, and both of them are remarkable. What does Paulina mean when she says, You need not fear, sir. This child was prisoner to the womb and is by law and process of great nature, thence freed and enfranchised, not a party to all that's taken place. What's she saying? She is not part of Hermione beyond what she had to be, which is when she was being carried in the womb. And being released from the womb, she's, she's free. And by, and by law, and by nature, I'm free. Melody, the sins of the mother cannot visit on the daughter. Say, say it again, Chuck. The sins of the mother cannot be visited on the daughter. Yeah, well, the mother has no sins at this point, as far as we know. Well, or at least not the, the sins she's being accused of. Yeah, the perceived sins. Melody, did you have something? No, I, I think the same way. She's telling the jailer, you don't have to worry about holding this baby behind bars. The baby is innocent. The baby's free of his jail, which was his womb, his mother's womb, or her mother's womb, so now she can be released. Yeah. Doc, what, how do you, what, what do you make particularly of that word, um, 
was prisoner of the womb and is by law and process of great nature, thence freed and enfranchised. What's the basis of her defense of this child? How do you... Well, she's appealing to a higher authority, to nature. Yeah. But I'm, I'm yes, yes. And I, I'm, I just want to make sure we don't read past that, that, that phrase, was a prisoner of the womb and is by law and process of great nature, thence freed. Can, paraphrase that. Can so you? she was, she was in the womb where she was a prisoner. She couldn't do anything. Yeah. Now she's been given birth, and she's freed. Yeah. She doesn't bear the guilt of Leontes. Yeah. She doesn't bear the guilt of Hermione, if there is any. Um, so she's freed, and a free person, enfranchised. She's enfranchised, freed. Yeah. Yeah. Does, um, is there a different spin? Are we to understand the word prisoner here the same way we do in all the other uses of it? Well, prisoner of the womb means she was confined. Yeah. Um, doesn't imply any guilt. Yeah, yeah. It just enlarges the meaning. Prisoner of the womb, she couldn't do anything about it. But is by law and process of great nature. And I think Chuck is, is right on that her appeal is to something greater than social conventions. All those things by which Leontes and his, all the men in the modern world, the men and women, live by. This child is free. It was protected in the, room, in the womb, as a matter of fact, because it was you know, contained. But she has no part. Think about the difference between this and a Protestant view of birth. Because a Protestant would say, the minute you come out of that womb, you're depraved. You enter the world depraved. Shakespeare's saying um, the fact that you come out of the womb near um, the womb and is by law and process of great nature, that is, you're a part of a natural process. It's not flaws, it's not depraved. Freed and enfranchised, you're free, not a party. Um, so she's defending, she's making a defense of sort of natural law. <coughs> the natural law is good and appealing to it. Um, we're going to, I'm going to have to, I really wanted to get farther than this. Um, I wanted to get to the courtroom scene when the embassy comes back. I'm, I'm not sure we will, and I'm not going to push tonight. I, I think what we'll probably do is take another week on Wintersdale because it's, it's just too important. Um, Act 2, Scene 3. Paulina enters Leontes' room with his child, his daughter. And he's not being able to rest. <laughs> Act 2, Scene 3 begins. Nor night nor day, um, no rest. Sorry. It is but weakness to bear the batter that he's just not being manly enough. Mere weakness. He's scorning himself because if he were tougher, he'd get some sleep. So the answer to him is it's just a, a fault. If the cause were not in being part of the cause, she, the adulteress for the harlot king, is quite beyond mine arm, out of the blank, Polixenes, he can't reach him, and level of my brain. He can't get at, he can't satisfy his sense of vengeance. Polixenes isn't around. He can't sleep, he can't rest. What he'd like to do is get rid of her. Say that she were gone, given to the fire. A moiety of my rest might come to me again. 
he wants her dead. He wants her dead. It's in the belief of that that he thinks he could sleep, he would get rest. She enters now, he's not been able to rest. The Lord says, this is about line 20 or so. She enters, the, um, the Lord says, you must not enter. Nay, rather, good my lords, be second to me. Fear you his tyrannous passion more, alas, than the queen's life? Gracious, innocent soul, more free than he is jealous. Watch how all the men cower. I, I'm going to pause in a minute, but hold on to this question. Why, why is it that all these men accommodate the king, give in, and this one woman stands alone? I ask that, see, I don't want an answer right now, but just hold on to that. Keep that in mind because I want to come back to it. The Lord say, don't come in, he's not rested. She says, um, not so hot, good sir, I come to bring him sleep to such as you that creep like shadows by him and do sigh at each of his needless heavings, such as you nourish the cause of his awaking. I do come with words as medicinal as true, honest as either, to purge him of that humor that present that presses him from sleep. She presents the um, babe, she's got it, um, Leonte says about line 60, Force her hence, get her out of here, Paulina. Let him that makes but trifles of his eyes first hand me. On mine own accord I'll off, but first I'll do my errand. The good queen, for she is good, hath brought you forth a daughter. Here tis commended to your blessing. She lays it down, out a mankind witch, hence with her, out the door, a most intelligent bod. Not so, I am as ignorant in that as you, and so um, entitling me. She has nothing to do with Bod Bodri. Leontes thinks his wife has. Um, she won't leave. He keeps pressing. And finally he says about line 80, he dreads his wife, uh, Paulina. So I would you did. Then twere past all doubt, you'd call your child, your children, yours. A nest of traitors. He's making all the men wrong. So he's shaming Antigonus and saying, you can't control your wife. You're not a man. If you were a man, you'd... Take control here. Leontes, a callant of boundless tongue, who late hath beat her husband, and now beats me. This brat is none of mine. He's the issue of Polixenes. Oh, God. Oh, God. He, he just, he tried to appeal to the manhood of these men and say, this woman beats you all up. I mean, what cowards you all are. Um, Paulina, go down. It is yours, and might we lay the proverb to your charge, so like... You, tis the worst. Behold, my lords, although the print be little, the whole matter and copy of the father, I knows lip, the tricks frown, his forehead, nay, the valley, the pretty dimples of his chin and cheek, his smiles, the very mold and frame of hand, nail finger, and thou, good goddess nature, which hast made it so like to him that got it. Leontes is the source. If thou hast the ordering of the minds too amongst all colors, no yellow in it, lest she suspect, as he does, her children's not her. She has none of that mis dis the color that comes from his distemper. She's clean. A gross hag, and Lazel, thou art worthy to be hanged, that will not stay her tongue. Um, she, um, he finally gets her to leave, and she says, about 125 or so, I pray you do not push me, I'll be gone. Look to your babe, my lord, tis yours. Love, send her a better guiding spirit. 
what needs these hands that are thus so tender, or his follies will never do him good. Not one of you so, so farewell, we are gone. Leontes, thou traitor, thou hast set thy wife to this, my child, away with it. Um, he, they defend Hermione's and Paulina. Leontes says about line 145, you're liars all. They kneel to him to show they're better than that. Antigone's about line 170 says, he will do anything to save the innocent, anything possible. Leontes takes the opening given to him and he says, take him away, swear on an oath that you will do this. Antigonus swears and he gives the child up to be taken away and abandoned. Now let me stop here. Um, um, we're getting close to the end of, I, I want to get to the courtroom scene, but it, it's too good and I don't want to rush it. Let me stop for a minute here. Describe the men and women, because this play is very much about different fundamental differences between men and women. We saw Leontes using his intellect to just wipe out things. He's reshaped the world according to his mind. Yeah? Women at least have this advantage. When they give birth, they have to give themselves to this process. Lots of women don't today, sadly. I mean, in that sense, they've almost become unmanned or unwomaned. You know, they're not in accord with their nature. Um, the whole modern world, in a sense, it's our sin. It's ours. And we were born into this age. We can't wish out of it. That's our world. We have to do something with it. We saw the masculine intellect unhinged and turning everything into the world to make it fit his mind. In a woman, a woman has to give birth and bring something. She has to give herself to what her nature is doing. So it's keeping her responsive to that nature in some way. It's clear that um, Hermione, Hermione was an extraordinary woman in delivery. She was patient and bore everything. It was an early delivery. I'm assuming that's Shakespeare's way of showing she was anxious. You know, a lot was going on. So it was probably an early delivery. A woman steps into this chamber and takes all these men on. This play is very much about men and women and fundamental differences and the way they play out in a political world. Just um, explain what's going on between the men, why they're so accommodating, cowering, and why Paulina has the force of character to do what she does. What is Shakespeare showing us? I think I told you um, that in, in some of our discussions when I was at UD, I had, we were talking about this play, one of my colleagues and I, and talking about this scene. And his take on Paulina was that she just absolutely lost it. Um, what's going on? Characterize what's going on. What is Shakespeare showing us about men in this court world and women, particularly Hermione and Paulina? The sexes, the differences between the sexes is very much on his mind in this play. Yeah? And you have any thoughts on that? The, the men are going to say and do what they need to say and do to keep the king's favor. To keep their job. Uh, yeah, right. God. Paulina has the, has the queen and the baby in mind, and she's saying... Look at this baby. She looks exactly like you. But he's not going to have yeah, it. Yeah. Connie, you've been quiet tonight. You have any thoughts on this? Come on. I always 
I'm always glad to hear your thoughts. I'd miss your voice. Say something. I want to hear you. <laughs> Actually, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm not going to hear that. you got to say something here. I had my grandbabies today. Do you have any thoughts about the differences here, just as they're presented, the men and the women? What is Shakespeare showing us? Of course, the women are just more nurturing and caring, and they, you know, she's, she, if that were me, I would be doing the same thing as Paulina fighting for the baby. I mean, come on, man. This is your child. She looks just like you. But the men are like, you know, well, the king says, so we're going to do what he, you know, what he says. So, Connie, I, I don't know you personally, but if anybody had asked me, I would have said, not. I mean, knowing you as I do a little bit, I there's not a doubt in my mind if you were in a situation like that, how you would react. I mean, oh, that yeah. that's my sense. Um <laughs> If you men value your eyes, back off. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Any other thoughts on this scene about differences between the men and women? There are a couple things occur to me. One, it's not really the difference between men and women. It strikes me that because at some point in your notes you ask where her strength comes from, which is kind of an odd question. I think the strength is just there, but I think if it comes from anywhere, it comes from her her confidence that she knows the truth and feels uh, defended by the fact that she has only expressed the truth. And I, I think a subtext of this, that doesn't come out from play at all, but knowing the times, that the one, I think a crowning achievement of our whole civilization is this elevation of the status of women. The same ethos that says you will never hit a girl that I grew up with, it's the same thing that will prevent, really, even Leontes from laying his hand on Paulina, because she hasn't transgressed. I mean, he's got a justification in law as he sees it for the way he treats Hermione, none of that for Pauline. Yeah, he but he puts he puts Hermione in the tower, and he, wa he wants her dead. In fact, I, you know it's interesting to spec. We can only speculate if the oracle. If he didn't have the or he appeals to the oracle. Get the or. I mean, I know this is ridiculous, but take the oracle out. It's it's hard to see him not reaching a point where he would do away with her. He's got the king. Well, I mean, Pauline, king. Uh, sorry. You need to do away with Hermione. Yeah. I mean, Henry did that with a number of his wives. That just, you know, put them in the tower and executed them. And um, Elizabeth did it too. I mean, when you had that power, is, though, he he could he could claim a, a basis for it. He could claim a violation of of a law or custom or something. There's there's nothing that it seems to me that the woman's untouchable un, under this this Western ethos if she hasn't violated the law somehow or broken a, a, a faith, broken a trust somehow. So yeah, she's I only think, telling. Yeah. There's nothing he can indict her for. Except, I mean, here I want to. I mean, I want to. You know, um, times are different, and I, I, I do not want to step into this thing that women weren't educated or because, um, I mean, that needs to be nuanced a lot. But the certainly the women at court were. Hermione, Hermione's a, a extremely well educated. I mean, she's gracious and smart, and um, but we know back then, with kings, that a, a king could take a law. And he could change it, or he could use the law to his advantage. He's going to claim here that she violated. There's nobody's going to be able to resist that, and he's he's going to insist that he's got the law behind him that she's an adulteress. Um, so evil kings are kings when they're motivated by evil in mo in moments of wrongful motivations. They can do things with their power and use laws in a way that will support them even though they're unjust. That's been a common fact of life from, from the fall onward. Um, 
Anybody else on this on the differences between the men and women here? We've only got a few minutes left. Melody, you have a thought? You look like you've been wrestling with this back and forth for the last five minutes. Come on. <laughs> well, um, I think about, like, I've talked to men, like, okay, so if something happens, I will speak up and say something. I know that surprises you. But men Are you that I'm with... <laughs> I hope you're being facetious. Good, good, yeah. <laughs> men have a tendency to pull back and not say something, and, and they'll say later, hey, he would have hit me. He wouldn't hit you. So I think, and I've seen this in a lot, is women aren't as worried about getting killed by the king or whatever. I mean, think of even the baby. He could have just killed the baby right there. He could have killed Hermione yeah. at any time. Yeah. But there's some kind of a tendency to, to shy away from that, to not do it, to let nature take its course. So women uh, reflect the nature or God-bearing part of it that... They um, they're a little more holy. Their their lives are 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 worth a little more, and they the kings won't touch them as quickly as they will the men. So the men kowtow to the king and listen to his his every whim, and they'll speak up maybe. But then if they sense the king's not with them, they will uh, shut up and and turn course or tell the king they'll do whatever he wants because they're more worried about being hurt whereas the women I don't know they have this natural this they don't have a fear of it I guess that may be the way I am I let me wait wait uh, Chuck can I cause, hold, sorry go ahead go ahead go ahead so I think it's our culture can you imagine a Muslim woman in a similar situation speaking up this way yeah I can't yeah it's I mean but and certainly after Mary and even if you look at women before Christ um, um, being used to make to reinforce social contracts. I mean, the way we see with Caesar. And, but I, here, I want to. I want to. Yes, to all that Christianity certainly reinforced that with the sense of a gentleman and a lady. Um, but I want to. I want to. If I can do this for a minute, I want to. I want to jump ahead to a modern situation, but ask everybody to take it back to this scene. Okay, in the modern world, you've got women. Um, having abortions um, we're in the we're in the midst of a holocaust experience that shows no signs of getting weaker so the number of babies who are being aborted I think probably exceeds the number of deaths in the second world war say I'm not sure the figures on that but I I'm, 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 I think they're for pretty secure you've got women who are aborting children or fetuses. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't want to get into an argument on that. But so the presentation, as you guys have put it, is that women are more nurturing. And I, and I. By the way, I happen to agree with that. I think they are. But if you look at what's going on in the modern world, it seems to me something has to qualify that. So let me ask you: take that modern situation back. Does it do anything with your treatment of that scene between men and Paulina? Is it, is it just that women are more nurturing by nature and men are given to not speaking up? Because, by the way, we've got lots of plays in Shakespeare in which the men do speak up forcefully. So um, I, I don't have any doubt about the fact that men can speak up when they want to. I mean, I, so I, I'm not going to make a generalization along those lines. But we've got a situation here 
in which all the men, and she calls them scoundrels or cowards, and she speaks up. Um, and I and I thought your comment about you know he doesn't kill the baby and he doesn't kill was right on, but he could have, but he doesn't. Is there anything else to be said about this scene? Why the men back off and why sh she finds it so easy to step forward? Because she doesn't care about politics, and they do. Can you hear Suzanne? Can you speak mm -hmm. up, Doc? Polina doesn't care about politics, and the men do. Um, what she cares about is Hermione, the baby, um, Mamillion. Um, she even, as we learn later in the play, she even cares about Leontes. She wants to school him. Yeah. Um, yeah. She cares yeah. about people and the heart and what's true and just. And the men care about politics. And in this case, politics means kowtowing to an insane king. Yeah. If I can put this differently, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let anybody respond. Um, the men back off because if they step forward, they do it at the risk of their jobs, their lives. They know they're going to lose their lives. By, by the way, we're doing um, John, and it's interesting for me to see the number of instances in which Jews don't step forward, like the parents of the blind man, when the Pharisees call them to task because they can't believe that Christ um, healed this guy. And the parents will not speak the truth because they're afraid they'll get put out of the temple. And that happens a couple of times there. The Jews don't speak up when they should because they're afraid they'll lose their position. How many times do people not do what they should do because they put too much importance to the world in which they live and they depend on? If the men speak up, I mean, put it in modern terms, they're going to lose their job. What happens now? So, Paulina stands outside of that world utterly. She's not dependent on it. Her whole way of life is maternal in the sense in which all of you have described it. What happens when women enter that world and they face a situation where to be truthful means they'll lose their jobs? How many will give in? Or how many will use that situation to justify other things like abortion? So he's presenting a world which, which not only defines men and women, but shows what happens in terms of those worlds, the nurturing of a woman, or you know, the politics, the, the, the fact that men become dependent on a job if they're serving, you know, if they're servants to a king. There's lots of plays in which lords stand up to kings. Um, so men don't back off of that. But here in this world, it seems to me, one of the things he's showing is the danger of that world. If you become dependent on it, will it compromise your integrity? Will you back off? The Jews did it in the gospel. I mean, we don't have to look very far. It's, it's in human nature. If women step into that world and it becomes the most important thing for them, what will happen when they're put in a position where they might have to lose that? So Shakespeare's presenting a scene here on the verge of modernity where he's looking at um, a world about radically to change, because it is going to change radically, in which this woman shows a rare kind of courage. And it's not only just in her, it was in Hermione. The two most extraordinary figures at this point in the play are both women. 
I, I think we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to do Henry V. We're going to have to do another play where the where the men stand up, because <laughs> we're in a lot of these plays. The the men are fading. Um, anyway, let me stop here. Any questions or comments? And I I'd, I'd hope to get to the trial scenes, but but we started late. So what I'd like to do next time is start with the trial scene. And I, I won't try to finish Winter's Tale. I, that'll be pushing it. I don't want to do that. We'll start with the trial scene and get to Bohemia and see what's going on with Perdita, how she's been raised as a young girl, the kind of girl she is. Florizel, who is Polixenes' son, he's born of the court, he's raised in the court, he belongs to that sophisticated world, he falls in love with this young woman. His father hears about it, Polixenes hears about it, and suspicious. He disguises himself and goes to this um, sheep sharing f um, festival. And then things darken again for a time. So a couple of questions. Um, I, one of the questions I asked you on the notes that I sent. The first half of the play is tragic. It's really dark. Except it ends not with um, Leontes learning that his wife is dead and his son is dead. It ends with Antigonus being chased by a bear and the men on the ship shouting. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very, it's a comic scene. It ends the first half before we shift to Bohemia. Why does Shakespeare do that? Why does he do that? And when we get to Bohemia, um, what do we learn about political worlds when we contrast them? Cecilia and Bohemia. What's the difference between them? What difference does it make on people in them? We're raised in a democracy. What has it done to us? What have we allowed it to do? What are we doing? Are, are we trying to def what are we defending in a democracy? Can anybody name our principles? What should we be defending in a democracy? Are we doing it? Or are we, have we allowed laws to be put on us that are taking away everything a democracy was created to do? So once again, we're going to be looking at regimes. Um, and I'm going to wait on the end of the play because I don't want to rush it next week. But um, we will look at the courtroom scene um, and we will begin in Bohemia. And one of the most important questions to my mind in all of this, are the gods present? Is there a divine order at work in this world? How do we know? If it is, what can we say about it? How does it stand with respect to humans? Polixenes, this wonderful kid, dies from a broken heart, I think. He sees his mother taken to the... I think he dies of a broken heart. It's not said, but he, I think his heart just breaks. Um, when Hermione hears that her son's dead, she faints. She passes out. What are the differences between men and women? What are we learning about men and women? The regimes again. How do these... What? How are these... What are the effects of these regimes on the characters in them? And are the gods present? We will tackle those questions and some others. So, um, Keep reading. It's an, it's an extraordinary play. It's an, it's an amazing play. It's, it's, um, I, I think it's one of the finest things he did. So, You guys have a good week. Stay safe. Um, and, and enjoy your reading. Take care of yourselves, okay? We'll see you guys Thank next you. week.
Thank you so much. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Doug.